So, this morning, I will attempt to describe to you briefly my understanding of humanity's evolution in its thinking about God. Now, I have to tell you, this is not something that is a conclusion based on years of research or even a deep understanding. It's just the result of a little figuring and head-scratching. I am sure that any decent theologian would rip my argument to shreds and probably call me names. I'm kind of glad that Jerry Keeney is not here this morning to have to respond to this. Now understand when I talk about my understanding about humanity's evolution in its thinking about God, that I am not talking about the evolution of God, but about the way we think about God. I don't believe that God has changed over the ages, but our perception of God certainly has. And I'm not asking you to agree with my assessment, but this is the way I kind of figure it. I believe that from the very beginning, human beings were created with an intuition toward God. I believe it's built into our DNA, into our system, that there is an understanding that there is something more out there. And I am assuming that the earliest members of our race used that intuition to explain the stuff of life that was mysterious to them. Water was mysterious. Didn't know where it came from or where it was going. And so there was an assumption that God must be in the water because God is that mysterious thing out there. Fire is mysterious in that when lightning strikes, it burns quickly and feverishly and destroys all that in its path, but yet at the same time, it is what helps keep humanity alive. And so it's so mysterious, and so the thought is that God must be in the fire. God must be in the earthquake because what else is going to cause the ground to shake like that? God must be in the sun because it keeps showing up every day and we don't understand why. God must be in cats, well, just simply because. And soon the idea that God must be in was replaced with God is. So in ancient thinking and in some modern thinking, there is a water God and a fire God and an earthquake God and a sun god, and a cat god, and any number of gods along the way, depending on your tribe or your nation or where you grew up and what you learned to expect uh, from God. Now, believing that God is in all this phenomena, we soon begin to understand that God could obviously control such phenomena. If God is water then God can keep the flood from my house. If God is fire, when my house doesn't burn down, it is God at work. So naturally, God comes to be seen as the one who protects us from all the mysterious stuff of life. 
From here, it is actually a small step to believing that the God who protects us from the stuff has chosen us because he protects us from the stuff. And if God has chosen us to protect, then God justifies our behavior as the one who protects us. If God protects me when there is an earthquake, then he protects me against my enemy, even as I try to kill him. And so God becomes a God of war and vengeance and retribution and all the things that human beings devise and believe God condones and justifies. And so we see President Bush and Saddam Hussein both televised at prayer services before the beginning of the Iraq war, each believing that God is on their side. As humanity further involves into societies, our intuitive bent towards God causes us to understand the expanded role of God as one who keeps order in society. God becomes the rule maker. And if God makes the rule, you know what? You best follow it. God doesn't just protect. God orders the world into a workable system with punishments for those who break the rules. And so God comes across, so, and so God, across religious experiences everywhere, becomes a law-giving God, setting the rules for life that must be obeyed. And if he is the law-giving God, then he must also be the God of justice because he has to take care of those situations in which the law is not obeyed. And if he is the God of justice, then he must also be the God of retribution and the God of mercy as he doles out both punishment and reward. And mingled into this order of society, God is the growing idea that God loves humanity. Not just the creator of humanity, not just the controller of the world, not just the protector of humanity, but actually the lover of humanity. God is not only creator, protector, and rule maker, but the creator actually cares about creation. Now, you can meet people today who fit into all these evolutionary levels in their thinking about God. And perhaps a last step in the evolution in our understanding about God is that God is love. Theos agape esten. God is love. Not that God has the ability to love or the capacity to love or that love is one of God's attributes, but that God's very nature is love. And when you come to this place that you believe that God is love, it has an incredible impact on your understanding of God. And it changes the way we think about wrath and judgment and hate and kindness and mercy and violence and life. And if God is love... Being obedient to God more than the rule following, to be obedient God, to God is to love. I had a church member once complain to me that I talked way too much about love in sermons and in Bible studies. And 
whatnot, with the implication being that I should really focus more on judgment and wrath. And my argument simply was that if God is love, then love is the paramount thing, and that the conversation must change dramatically based on that reality. God doesn't just love, God is love. It is at the core of everything. And to be obedient to God is to love God and God's creation. And to show love for God by loving people. And so the Hebrew scriptures require us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus' idea of love is that it is the regulating ideal of all of life and comes to play in every decision we make and every action we take. Love one another. Love your friend. Love your neighbor. Love the stranger. Love your enemy. Paul declares that love is the greatest aspect of faith. He claims that love fulfills the law. He claims that followers of Jesus must wear love like they wear their clothes. He describes love as practical and life-affirming. Peter writes that the very first thing, above all, is that we love one another. John reminds us that love casts out fear, and when fear is cast out, what is left is more love. And so the writer of Hebrews states very briefly and clearly, let mutual love continue. Love continues as we continue to practice it. Love isn't just about the words we say or the proverbs we recite. Love is active, centered in the person of God through Jesus Christ, who is by nature love, and who calls us as his beloved children to love one another. Let love continue. Amen.